This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Welcome. This apparently this is the last warm day of the year, and it's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming. I'm Tim Oates, Head of Assessment Research and Development here. Um, at these events now, what we've adopted is an expert chair to introduce the speaker. Very often the expert chair is somebody who's worked with the presenter closely on areas of inquiry, and it provides some kind of contextualisation for the main presentation. And I think this area particularly needs some of it. Uh, Many of you will be educationalists principally interested in further education or in uh, in general schooling, and therefore the whole area of vocational education is pretty intimidating and odd to many well-versed in uh, traditional uh, compulsory education. One of the reasons I'm interested in vocational education is that somebody once said to me very early in my research career, when I was a very green researcher, uh, vocational education training, Tim, don't go anywhere near it. There's no research future in it at all. Now, that made me very intrigued, because this is a very, very very prominent educational researcher. So I I was interested, and I began to dig a bit, and I became very interested, because I noticed that there was only a very, very small coterie of high-level academics actually involved in the area. And I became interested as to why. And and for the next four or five minutes, I'm just going to outline why. Um, One of the things that that, uh, Ewart and I absolutely agree on is that uh, if you think schooling's complex, try vocational education and training. And some of you already have heard me outline this contrast, but I think it's really, really important Let's think about um, schools and VET. Now, with schools, we know where the schools are, so we know where the learning's happening. It's relatively easy to govern, relatively easy to govern. The ownership is clear, although parental state responsibility in respect of the learning of children is an issue. There are clear populations and cohorts. There is a legal obligation to attend. There's solid research on pedagogy. And there are powerful instruments of curriculum control. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that as a minister sitting in Whitehall, it doesn't always feel that way. But actually, there are powerful instruments of curriculum control, and the system is relatively simple. Now, let's just contrast VET. And, and let's notice also the ambiguity between VET and higher education, because quite a lot of higher education is actually vocational in character, medicine, law, accountancy, engineering, and so on. But let's think about vocational education training, VET. There are diverse and shifting locations of learning workplaces, colleges, private training providers, and so on. It's difficult to control, and governance institutions are incredibly unclear. We often don't know, by the way, where the learners are or who they are, and that's quite problematic, Um, particularly, by the way, if you're a private training provider who's been engaged in in funding ghost candidates or, or funding people who don't actually want to learn, as we heard in the media this week. Um, the ownership of and the responsibility is pretty unclear, actually. Who is responsible for VET in this country? Is it employers? Is it the state? Is it individuals? Nobody's quite decided. There are constantly shifting participation patterns. There are complex patterns of requirements and incentives regarding participation. And there's very little work on workplace pedagogy, although colleagues like Linda Clark have done fantastic work on the structure of learning within workplace settings. Linda's with us today. So there are two things there. First of all, 
Ewart and I have discussed at great length, will qualifications reform fix all of the problems in VET? That's incredibly unlikely. And secondly, it's just really hard to get what you want if you're a minister. So that's, that's all really important stuff, I think. Now, what we've moved from in the 1960s and 70s, from a command economy of the 1960s and 70s, mass nationalisation, trends towards centralised control, is, an, is a policy context where manpower planning has been entirely discredited. The notion that the state can actually identify those areas in which it should direct its funding in order to prepare in advance for developments in the economy. That went. And that's fine, because it had all sorts of deficiencies. The problem is, what replaces it? And that we've been struggling with uh, since the 1970s. That's not been good for our economy. Where are we going to get the skills of the future in respect of young people and in terms of adults? Now, there have been some excellent people in this small field, or this niche field, uh, and often they've been multidisciplinary in their focus. They've often been labour economists interested in training, uh, curriculum developers who've had to become interested in politi- political economy. But prominent amongst them, Sig Preis did excellent work, uh, Hilary Stephen, Alison Wolfe, and there was a definitive paper, actually, which is pretty defective, but it was very, very important, which was David Feingold's breaking out of the low-scale equilibrium. That pointed to the importance of transnational comparisons. Um, Ken Mayhew's done excellent work at Oxford, a colleague of, uh, of Ewart's, and Francis Green. In London, Michael Young did excellent work during the 1980s alongside Ken Spores and Anne. And I disagree with virtually everything that Ken Spores and Anne Hodgson have said about the vocational education training system. I'll pick up on some of that in just a second. Here, Paul Ryan's done really, really interesting work, and I do commend it, on the history of apprenticeship. So, I mean, there are fascinating snippets. So, for example, the London riots amongst the apprentices because they were just fed up with eating fresh salmon day after day, taken from the Thames. But he also deals some, with some really interesting matters of the shift from family ownership during the 1940s of our major enterprises through the Slater-Walker asset-stripping era, the decay of traditional apprenticeship, and the failure again, and Ewart will pick this up, the failure again to put anything in the place of high-quality, true apprenticeship. Very, very good work. Um, Mike Coles and myself have done a lot of international comparative work and looked at the role of qualifications and qualification frameworks because they don't do the job. But they're the easiest thing to mess with if you're a politician. It's very easy to say, what we will do is we'll increase training volumes by transforming vocational qualifications. And that's been done repeatedly. And I'll finish on that note in just a second. More recently, Chris Winch has done fascinating work because he's broken rank with the majority of philosophers and actually brought his understanding of epistemology and ontology to the vocational arena and worked with Linda, uh, looking at concepts of competence across different nations and then how that is reflected in their education and training arrangements. And that's been a really telling analysis in terms of explaining the supply of certain forms of labour in our economy and how restrictions on the supply of certain forms of labour then conditions work and actually conditions your economy and actually presents limits on the way in which you can constitute your economy. Bib, uh, the ETF in Turin, and uh, Sedafop in Thessaloniki, again, have done great international work, but not well known. But it's worthwhile Googling Sedafop, C-E-D-E-F-O-P, 
and actually looking at the range of reports which they've got. Mike and I have got uh, a report on there on the, on, the, on the 40 functions of qualifications. But more recently, looking at England and, and the UK, what we've essentially had is a target-driven policy process. So governments have, have, have landed themselves with unrealistic expectations of what they can achieve by expressing in this really messy world of VET something tangible. They've used qualification reform, the most easy policy instrument available, and they've set themselves targets because that seems plausible in this very complex world. If the, if the world of, of VET and economy is so complex, the best thing to do is to just set yourself some targets and then hope that you can launch yourself on a trajectory to achieve those targets. Regressively, what that's led to is largely fudging what counts, and that's become very problematic. I'll end on a couple of anecdotes. Um, We became, in this small community, so concerned about some of these matters, the erosion of the quality of apprenticeship, the failure to understand that roots in the education system are important. That's where I depart from Kenanan, with the notion that you can have a uniform system, a unitary system that roots are important, that incentives and drivers are absolutely fundamental, and indirect incentives and drivers need to be manipulated in order to increase training volumes. We were so concerned about all of this that I put together a delegation to go to the Treasury. Now, we all turned up dressed in ties and suits. We'd really poshed up for this. This was just after Brown had left the Treasury. And, and we'd become very fed up with the notion, the Brownian notion, that the way you get economic growth is to provide higher-level skills. So providing higher-level skills drives economic development. That was a thesis that we thought empirically was just untrue. So we wanted to go to the Treasury to say why this wasn't the case and why more sophisticated policy development was actually required. So we waited in the lobby, and then we went into a beautiful seminar room. Uh, And everybody... And this this is a, a, a relatively insulting story. The people who came in didn't have a tie amongst them. And, and the thing is, they were all very, very, very young. They all carried clipboards, okay, with blank sheets of paper. Uh, none of the briefing papers that we'd sent in were anywhere in evidence. And they all sat down very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to a person. There was a good gender split between them, sort of 50-50. And the trouble was that whenever we had said, said anything, they said, this is all very interesting, This is all very interesting. This is all new stuff to us. By the end of the meeting, we thought, oh my God, you know, how are you going to actually interpret all this stuff that we're saying to bring it to bear on the policy formation process? And it, and it, it leads me to really introduce you, because we got quite grumpy in that meeting. Um... And nowhere, I mean, I've said this before in other settings, but nowhere before was the following more true. And ministers have said to you and myself, why won't this work in the VET world? And the answer then at that meeting in Treasury and the answers to the ministers were, well, because it hasn't worked the last six times you've tried it. You know, if you look at the structure of youth training, they've renamed it. They've never changed the underlying structures. They've never moved away from the policy instruments which didn't work the last time around. And we've been stuck in a cycle of recycling policy without really recognising or engaging with the true reasons for why it doesn't work. 
And the reason I've invited Ewart to Cambridge, and the reason I think I really commend the presentation to you, is that you will get in a, in a, in a, in a very fast-flowing presentation, a very rich presentation, what usually people get when Ewart looks down at a meeting. Now, when Ewart looks down at a meeting, you've got to be worried, because what will come will be a rapid flow of things which will actually say how it should be. And often that's very much at odds with what the policymakers or the bright-eyed and, bushy-t- uh, and bushy-tailed policy advisors are saying. So with that, Ewart, it's great that you've come. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Tim. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you also to the OECD for getting the results of the PIAC um, survey out today. I wish I could say that I'd planned all that, but no, it's just happy synchronicity and very useful news. Right, I have a title. I'll try and address it. My starting point is a fairly famous Victorian picture which uh, hangs in the picture gallery of Royal Holloway College in London University. Uh, I did my undergraduate degree at Royal Holloway. Uh, The picture is by Sir Edwin Landseer. Uh, It's a picture of um, two very grumpy and very uncuddly polar bears. Uh, they've just torn apart uh, a polar explorer. So there's the um, mast from a ship, there's a tattered flag, there's a brass-bound telescope sitting on the ice floe that the two um, rather grumpy bears are sitting on. Uh, there's a rib cage, there's a little bit of blood on the ice floe, and one of the polar bears has got a, a human bone sticking out of their mouth as they lick the last bits of flesh off it. Um, this was a reference to uh, which Victorian viewers of the painting would have got to the famous attempt to find the Northwest Passage uh, by HMS Erebus and HMS Terror. Uh, no one survived from that uh, expedition. Uh, they all died. In Royal Holloway College, uh, the picture gallery is used as one of the many exam rooms. Anyone who sits, the, a rumour got round that anyone who sat next to the Landseer picture failed their exams. So there is now a long-established tradition in Royal Holloway College that before the exam season starts, to ward off the evil luck of the picture, the picture is covered, you'll love this, in a Union Jack. And that makes it safe to sit next to when you do your finals. Uh, (coughs) That tradition carries on to this day. In a sense, my central thesis is going to be that policymakers propose uh, many different kinds of education and training reform, a lot of them to do with qualifications. The labour market then, rather like the polar bears, proceeds to um, rip the the reforms to shreds. Uh, And I'm going to argue that one of the main reasons they do that is because the incentives that are created in the labour market to acquire VQs are not very good. Okay, the traditional policy narrative, which Tim has just referred to, is about the demand, but the demand for skills is rising, it's unproblematic, the real issues lie on the supply side, all we need to do is reform the supply system through funding, regulation, institutions, qualifications. There's a huge pent-up demand for upskilling amongst employers, which will be released if only we can reconfigure the education and training system correctly. And the coalition government in Skills for Sustainable Growth uh, made the following proposition. Employers are willing to invest, invest far more than they do at present in the skills of their workforces if they can be sure that the training they buy will be of high quality and geared to their needs. Now, it's interesting that there was no attempt to evidence that belief. It was simply asserted. Um, I think the evidence for it is rather thin. 
The recent Labour Party policy review on apprenticeship worships at the same altar. That if you give employers a something-for-something deal, employers will massively expand their provision of Level 3 apprenticeship, a goal we've been pursuing for the last quarter of a century. Wouldn't like to bank on it, and I'm going to try and explain why. Within the traditional policy model, the role of the reform of VQs centres on better fitting VQs to meet or reflect what employers really want. Policymakers will always say this. They'll say, well, if we have a problem with VQs at the moment, it's because they don't meet the needs of employers at the moment. There's an interesting assumption behind that, that the needs of employers are fairly monolithic, fairly undifferentiated, and easy to identify. And again, that's a puzzling belief, because if we look back over the last 30 years, we've had a very great number of attempts to... to reform VQs in a way that would better meet the needs of employers. And yet we still don't seem in many occupational areas and at some vocational levels to have actually achieved that goal. But the belief is that once we've achieved uh, the better fit between qualification and demand, um, the the requirement for VQs will rise very rapidly, wage premium to VQs will rise, and everyone will live happily ever after. Now the alternative view which I'm afraid is the one that I hold to, is that many of the problems we face in the education and training system generally, uh, but with VQs in particular, are reflections of much wider difficulties. They're difficulties with wage systems and wage levels in some occupations. They're difficulties with recruitment and selection practices in some areas, occupations and firms. They're difficulties with low job quality and design and the resultant levels of demand for skill in a lot of lower-end work. There are problems with progression opportunities or the lack therein in certain occupations and types of firm, and the difficulties that are mainly clustered at the lower end of the labour market, and we ignore those problems at our peril. Put it another way, we have a lot of pretty awful jobs in the UK, which offer low pay, little opportunity for progression, which demand fairly limited uh, amounts of skill, certainly in terms of the kind of skill that might be certified in a normal VQ. And often the recruitment and selection processes via which you access that kind of work have very little, if any, role for vocational qualifications within them. Now, the existence of that kind of work creates very weak incentives to invest time, energy or money in learning for those who are destined or believe themselves to be so to occupy such jobs. They are simply not being sent terribly strong messages or signals from the labour market about the value of acquiring certain sorts of VQs. If the second model is correct, reform of VQs will only work if it takes place alongside other forms of labour market reform. Improving job quality, stimulating underlying levels of demand for skill, improving progression for low-paid workers so that the qualifications they get allow them to move up the job ladder. In the absence of such an approach, my argument would be that VQ reform will tend to have limited effects as weak VQs ultimately reflect narrow and pretty limited demand for skills in some occupations. In other words, the problem is that VQs at the moment at the bottom end of the VQ spectrum, actually probably do reflect what a lot of employers want all too accurately, and that's why they're not very robust VQs. Okay, there's a structure to what I'm talking about, and we'll go through it. Okay, 
let's scroll back a little bit about the idea of the incentives to learn. Uh, I wrote a really dull monograph in 2009 about the incentives to learn, and anyone who feels sleepless could have a look at it. It's, it's, it's on the Scope website. But it was an attempt to really try and produce a typology of the incentives that exist. And in a sense, and this comes back to something that Tim was saying, much of the policy focus and much of the research focus over the last 30 years has been on type 1 incentives, those that are intrinsic to the learning process, curriculum, pedagogy, so on. Type 2 incentives are generated in wider society. They're generated in work, they're generated in culture, they're generated in, in parental attitude to learning. And what I argued in the monograph is that if type 2 incentives are weak, complex, or uncertain, learners may not participate or succeed, and that you need to pay attention to both sets of incentives if you want to make sense of the participation and achievement patterns we have. Okay, type 1 incentives. I don't want to labour this point because you'll all be perfectly well aware that these are the kinds of things that policymakers obsess about. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. These things plainly matter really significantly to how people acquire knowledge and how successfully they do so. But we need also, particularly when we're thinking about vocational qualifications, which are supposed to be leading directly into certain paths in the labour market, what the type 2 incentives are. Wage returns to particular qualifications or skills, other benefits like intrinsic job interest, opportunities for progression or travel, which tend to be clustered in higher level jobs rather than lower level jobs, social status, license to practice and mandatory CPD regulations, which mean that for certain sorts of people in certain sorts of jobs, acquiring qualifications and engaging in lifelong learning is mandatory. They don't do it, they lose their professional certification. So in a sense, there's, a very, there's an absolute incentive on those people to learn throughout their careers, throughout their working lives, which is completely absent if you're not in that kind of job. Cultural expectations within society or particular ethnic or class segments therein, we know those are very powerful. Non-economic benefits to do with enhanced satisfaction in other aspects of, of adult life. And we know that a lot of adults who don't learn in terms of their work engage in lifelong learning for reasons other than work, to do with par parenthood, sporting or cultural activities, personal interest, whatever. And again, we ignore that factor at our peril. The problem with bad jobs and type 2 incentives is very simple. We have about 20 to 22% of our current workforce that are low paid. And in-work poverty is rising, and I'll come back to that. A lot of our work is insecure and casualised. There is a strong lack of job control, discretion, ability to dictate how you as a worker do the job. High stress levels, often because of work intensification, Dull, boring and repetitive jobs with short job cycle times. Many people in our economy work in jobs where the job cycle time, i.e. the start to finish of what they're being paid to do, is a minute or less. They just do the same thing. It's not very exciting and there are significant implications for both on-the-job learning and the requirements that are likely to be built into the VQs that fit you for that job. And we also know, and I'll come back to this, that there's a strong lack of opportunities for progression out of a lot of this work. Low-end jobs are not fading away. That's the other thing. That 
As Tim and I will remember, we've sat in many policy meetings in the past where civil servants and policymakers have told us, oh, you don't need to worry about all this rubbish, Hewitt. Um, these jobs are vanishing. Uh, we're all going to be knowledge workers shortly. Uh, well, uh, the reality is we're not. Uh, in actual fact, most of the projections suggest that low-paid work in the UK is set to rise rather than fall. The bottom end of our labour market is in many senses getting worse. The New Economics Foundation study showed that the jobs available for non-graduates is shrinking and that most of that job growth is in um, low-paying sectors. They also found that upskilling those workers would have marginal impact on either their employability or their pay. The figures on that slide are really scary. They are what people like the Resolution Foundation, Child Poverty Action Group and many others have been talking about for the last couple of years. Since 2009, the number of workers earning less than a living wage has increased from 3.4 million to 4.8 million. It is in work poverty that is becoming the modern face of hardship. The idea that work is the best way out of poverty at a general level of principle is still probably viable, but in many specific instances it does not actually work. People remain poor. That kind of work is going to yield low returns to the VQs held by those who undertake such employment. That's an inescapable fact, and it ought to worry us. And access to such work may not be dependent on holding a VQ, and this comes back to recruitment and selection. I produced a scope research paper on this with Susan James a couple of years back, reviewing what we know about recruitment and selection. And hats off to the UK Commission for Employment and Skills, because... Through the National Employer Skills Survey, they've probably done better survey work than anyone else about how employers are actually recruiting. The Human Resource Management textbook model of recruitment and selection, which is a meritocratic model based on qualifications and formal interviews and references and all the rest of it, is actually probably a minority sport. There is a massive growth of informal recruitment and selection amongst small firms particularly, though actually larger firms as well, who are recruiting not least through word-of-mouth personal recommendations, which completely circumvent the standard HRM textbook model. And it's not just low-end work, though it's very prevalent in low-end work. Siemens in the UK, they have a train maintenance department that looks after Siemens built electric and diesel trains. Their main recruitment mechanism for engineers, and these people earning £40,000, £45,000 a year, is by personal word-of-mouth rec word recommendation from their existing employees about someone they know working somewhere else who would make a good Siemens engineer. And that is seen by the HR department as probably the best recommendation possible because the worker who's recommending the other person is responsible for that recommendation, so they're not likely to make it lightly. So the, the idea that you have a qualification-based meritocracy as your model for how you recruit and select looks lovely on paper, but it is a reality that does not apply in an increasing proportion of jobs, particularly entry-level jobs, and that is a really big problem. And if you look at the UKCS Youth Inquiry papers, there have been three of them, they really bring out what an enormous um, change has been taking place under the radar. Resolution Foundation's view on low-paid work, it's now clearer than ever that low-pay will not solve itself through a light-touch approach of pursuing growth and investing in skills. 
the lower half of the UK labour market is simply not creating higher quality jobs in the way that economists once anticipated. While these trends are apparent in most advanced economies, the UK market is creating notably lower quality, lower paying versions of these roles than other countries. Which again, should alarm us. And might, just might, have something to do with the PIAC results that we saw come out today. But we can discuss that. There's also very limited progression opportunities out of low-paid work. Um, Colleagues of mine in my research centre, Scope, have done a lot of work on progression opportunities in low-paid work. And what is clear is that for a lot of low-paid jobs, only a limited proportion of the workers are ever going to move up the ladder. And they are usually small steps. So if you become the manager of a cafe, as opposed to a Starbucks or whatever, and you move up from being a barista or whatever you want to call it, counter service worker, the difference is probably 50p an hour. The the, the baristas are on a national minimum wage. The cafe manager uh, gets uh, 50p an hour extra. And the cafe manager has to usually stock up the storeroom. It's very interesting. If you actually look at the job descriptions for some cafe managers, some of the chains, they actually say, you must be able to lift 20 kilograms because you'll be stacking the shelf, storeroom shelves with the coffee packets and whatnot. Insofar as those opportunities are available, they're not available usually to part-timers because managerial posts are full-time. And qualifications play absolutely no role whatsoever in determining which workers get promoted, which really isn't good news for um, the topic we're discussing today. We know that employer demand for skill at aggregate level is pretty limited. Francis Green quote, uh, again, would tend to me to help explain the PIAC results uh, that we've seen come out uh, today we really do have a very strange view of what kind of foundation level of skill it is that we require of new entrants to the labour market in entering quite a lot of jobs in our economy. The second bit of that slide, I think, is probably the most depressing statistic that I'm aware of. When you think back at all of the money, the effort, the exhortation, the schemes, the cajoling, that government directed at employers. And yet we know that the incidence of training across the workforce peaked in the year 2000 and is back to where it was in 1993 and it started declining long before the recession hit. So it's not a recession effect, it's a general effect. Employers are offering less training. So... If, it comes, if employers' training um, provision is any indication of demand for skill, then we have a significant problem. Now, politicians, sooner or later, in any speech these days, particularly if the word social, the phrase social mobility is mentioned, will talk about raising aspiration. Well, raising aspiration is nice, but it may not be a good thing. There's a lovely quote from the Shropshire Training Providers Network, which was given to the biz select committee uh, inquiry into apprenticeship. There's a mismatch between employer requirements and learner aspiration. We still have a large number of jobs which are at level two or below. The drive for more and more advanced apprenticeships is creating an expectation among young people and parents who then become unwilling to consider the lower levels. 
Well, what does that suggest for the future of the husband's review? Uh, the Labour Party review says that we must um, get employers to expand, uh, vastly expand their Level 3 apprenticeship provision. But nice aspiration, but employers are saying, well, actually, we have a lot of Level 2 and below jobs. So if, you want, you know, if our training reflects what we want, that's what you're going to get. So uh, for some youngsters, you need to lower your aspirations, not raise them. This is the second most depressing set of statistics after the ones on employer training. Um, I find this, I mean, I've shown, used this slide a lot of times, uh, and anyone who's heard me talk before probably has seen it. But I just think they're astonishing. Now, we don't know who those 357 responses were from. Many of them will be from training providers who plainly want to minimise the amount of cost inputs they have to make into training. But quite a few of them will tragically be from employers. 70% of respondents rejected the idea that maths and English should be a requirement in all apprenticeship frameworks. Don't need that. 68% did not want an ICT qualification in all frameworks. We don't need ICT. Only 53% agreed that all six of the personal learning and thinking skills were needed in all frameworks. You have to wonder what kind of jobs people are doing. And only 35% thought, thought that 250 hours off the job learning was needed. Uh, and actually they got that. The government caved in and said, OK, we'll make it 100 hours and we won't enforce it because we've no way of enforcing it. Now, what does that suggest about the likely outcome of trying to implement the Richard Review of Apprenticeship? Because I suspect what it, it, it suggests is that the Richard Review will, will begin to bump into the harsh reality that employers and training providers have very limited aspirations for a lot of their apprenticeship frameworks. We come to a point that Tim made very clear and I would completely agree with. A work by Michaela Brockman, Linda Clark and Chris Winch is probably one of the most important, if not the most important bits of research that have been done in the last five to ten years on vocational education and training. Because what they showed in their book, and I've got the reference for the book at the end, there is a reading list at the end of this, um, this talk, was that we, British employers have a different intellectual conception of what skill is, vocational skill, and it's narrower and smaller than in other countries. If you go to Europe, you endlessly get bombarded by people wittering on about transversal qualifications, T-shaped skills, lots of breadth, lots of deep knowledge. Most low-level, most UK low-level um, VQs are I-shaped. There's no T. Uh, there isn't much of a tool's deep knowledge either. Uh, they're the least you can get away with. And in a sense, if you wanted me to encapsulate the research, that's how I'd encapsulate it. They, the foreigners have a T, we have a, uh, we have a lowercase i. And that goes a long way towards explaining why I think that the Richard Review and the Husband's Review are going to have problems. Husband's Review, and that's a lovely quote from David Harborn, Director of Policy and Research at the Edge Foundation. Now, you might have hoped that the Edge Foundation, as the foundation that's supposed to be out there fighting for the status and value and relevance of vocational learning, would have been a bit more robust than saying, oh, husband's review says apprenticeships will include a day off the job or training a week, 94 days, Ooh, that's a rigid requirement, more than some sectors need and more than some employers could offer. Where, again, do we think employer aspiration ought to be aiming? 
Do we pitch things at what employers fancy at the moment, or what's the least I can get away with, as opposed to what we ought to be aiming at? And if there's a gap between the two, is it because employers have a lot of low-skilled jobs that they need to change? Quick example, mass retailing. Mass retailing, I think, is important because it employs... It's the largest single occupational category in the UK, retail assistant. That doesn't cover checkout operators in supermarkets, by the way. They're slightly separate. So if you add them in, it gets even bigger. It's been the dominant model, certainly in the the noughties, uh, for people like fitness centres, banking. Uh, My centre would interview fitness uh, centre firms, and they'd say, we want to be like Tesco's. I'm sure I'd want to go to a gym that was, was modelled like Tesco's, but no matter. Um, but their, their model was, well, you have a low-skill workforce. It's all about customer care, smiling at the customers you hand them their towel. That's the way to do it. And, of course, the other thing that they didn't mention, but it's plainly in their mind, was in those days Tesco's were raking the money in, and that was the model they wanted. It's nice and simple. Morrison's is one of the largest uh, English providers of something called apprenticeship. Uh, and as we know, that can be an excitingly varied category. of apprenticeship starts in the last year were in retail or business admin. So retail really, really matters. It's not a very functional labour market. I mean, I'm sure it's very functional from the point of view of employers, but it may not be very functional from the point of view of societal interest. Internal labour markets are limited. There are a few upward rungs. Those rungs don't extend very far. Labour turnover is high, which discourages training. In a lot of big retail chains, people, people in the shop floor trying to work up meet graduates cascading down. Much of the lower-end work is relatively de-skilled, and the specification of the VQs in the sector reflect this. It's interesting that many of the apprenticeships in retail are actually not in retail. They're in customer care, customer service, VQ level two. Skill utilisation is often extremely poor, uh, and if you go into most, a lot of supermarkets or shops, what you find are women returners to the labour market who are massively, massively overqualified for the work and their skills are not being used very well. Steve Roberts' article, which again is in my reading at the end of this, everyone should read this article. It is a wonderful, wonderful piece of research talking to uh, young men working in retail. Those two quotes, it's not clear whether the, the, the people, those, those people were either on train to gain or they were on apprenticeship. But I mean, as the difference is, was marginal, uh, not, not at all, doesn't really matter. But what's interesting is that even the trainees themselves could see that they were being conned, that what they were getting was actually an empty box with a, with a you know, nice certificate on the front of it saying level two but when you open the box there wasn't a lot of skill in it it was simply uh, accreditation of prior learning and as the prior learning wasn't very deep uh, there wasn't really much to accredit um, i do think that's a really interesting work and it's a, the article in general is really worth a read now for those heading towards such jobs i think this creates fairly weak incentives uh, to participate and achieve and no amount of adjusting type one incentives inside the education and training system is going to compensate for the fact that type 2 incentives are pretty feeble. Now, there are, I hate to say this, but there are a lot of educationists who don't want to hear that. They put their fingers in their ears and say, no, no, we can transform young people's prospects by other means. I have no doubts that you can get or persuade or encourage young people to learn more. Whether you'll change their actual prospects once they enter the labour market is another matter. Policymakers do not like hearing this story because they basically say to you, off the record, yeah, well, all this is very interesting, Europe, but we can't change any of this. 
We just can't change. It's black box, black box. So we won't, you know, we, we accept that probably what we're doing is tinkering at the margins, but black box, can't touch it. Employment, what employers do with their workforce, skill requirements, nothing to do with us. Well, if in any given labour market the number of jobs is finite and is exceeded by the supply of those seeking work, by the UK labour market at present, and the number of good or desirable jobs is a finite subset of the jobs available, there will be losers. Some people will get jobs, but not good jobs, and some people will get no jobs at all. Current situation. Education and training can move people up and down the job queue, but in and of itself, we cannot create good jobs through the education system directly. And there is a grave danger that by raising educational attainment, and but not changing jobs, what we mainly achieve is overqualification or qualification mismatch. Thus, the higher the levels of unemployment, the higher levels of inequality in terms of job quality across the available openings, the larger the pool of bad jobs relative to good ones, particularly in certain individual local labour markets, and the weaker returns to the qualifications, the more likely it is that those thinking of investing in learning will be faced by complex, patchy, uncertain, and therefore very risky incentives to learn, and they will act rationally. We know that bad jobs are often concentrated in specific local labour markets. They're also clustered in certain occupations and sectors. Hospitality, retailing. In positional competition for a finite supply of good jobs, we know that many people from certain types of background are less likely to get the good jobs. And the impact on incentives is probably fairly obvious. To put it another way, people perceive a pecking order. Aspiration in terms of jobs and careers may reflect the material reality of how good and bad jobs are currently allocated. The Gracie and Kelly quote for a really useful article on this subject, I think really does suggest that when we look at what young people's choice is, we should be very cautious about saying that young people are acting irrationally or foolishly. They may be acting more rationally than we give them credit for. Ingrid Schoon has made a very broadly similar point that young people start out with relatively high aspirations, but as time goes on, particularly from about the age of 13, reality impinges and they have a tendency to downgrade what they fancy um, as they realise that they're not actually going to get what they want. To raise ambitions, you may need to increase good opportunities in the labour market. Rather than changing individual minds you probably need to change collective circumstances. You need more and better jobs, and that is quite a difficult thing to do. Which brings us back to the strength of incentives that the labour market provides to young people and adults, and the design of lower-level VQs, where employer input might be a break on ambition concerning breadth, depth and transferability, rather than the answer. We've had problems with low-level VQs, and we've known it for a long time. Policymakers have been in denial of that point, certainly within government for a long time. In a sense, the Wolf Review was the critical moment where someone who was sponsored by a powerful minister told policymakers what many of us had known for donkey's years, uh, that basically there are a lot of low-level VQs out there that don't produce terribly good returns, don't support progression, and are not probably doing that much good. I think there are real, there's really quite significant evidence that many of our low-level VQs provide limited foundation for wider learning that would allow people to return to learning later. They don't support citizenship. They don't return, support a return to academic learning. 
and they've got a limited hold on recruitment and selection. So they are not working terribly well. But changing them may be difficult. As I've already suggested, I think one of the great difficulties that policymakers don't understand about VQs at the bottom end, of course because they've never taken them, and neither they nor their children would ever do so, those qualifications are complex, far more complex than GCSEs and A-level, and they are, the rates of return they produce are very, very uncertain. They're uncertain on the basis of age, gender, type and level of qualification, subject and occupation it's related to, location in which learning takes place, and who pays for it. And that complexity means it's, that there's risk, and people with less resources tend to be very risk-averse. We know that returns to level 2 VQs are variable, they're complex, they're sometimes poor. We know that returns to level 2 NVQs on the whole are very low and uncertain, and average returns are very misleading, as there's a huge variation around that average. Reason for this? Well, I think the Wolf Review put their finger on it beautifully in a quote which you could basically label uh, Labour Economics 101, Other things being equal, high wage returns to a particular form of qualification mean high demands for, or short supply of, the skills and qualities to which it attests. In other words, if if your piece of paper is going to buy you a higher wage in the labour market, it has to certify skills that are not ubiquitous, are not easy to get hold of. And the problem with a lot of low-level VQs is that the skills they certify don't have those characteristics. Plenty of people can walk in off the streets and do the job. Now, as a result, we know that we've got problems. Um, That's, again, from the UKCS Youth Inquiry. Uh, We have a higher proportion of degree people working in jobs that don't require the skill. More scarily, in a way, um, we also have uh, a significant rate of young people at below degree level who are, who are overqualified for the work that they're entering and there is some evidence that they're getting stuck in these jobs for longer. The potential effects of this mismatch, trading down, widening dispersion in earnings at different qualification levels, particularly graduate, trading down displaces other young people, there's a scarring effect on lifetime earnings, Chilling effect on the aspirations of those not aiming for HE and increasing uncertainty about the outcomes of investment of time energy in all forms of post-compulsory education and training. Policy overplays what upskilling can do. And someone from Cambridge who has said something very, very, very pertinent. This was in a Resolution Foundation uh, document uh, in 2012. In the short run, skills policy is unlikely to be able to move Large numbers of individuals currently in lower and intermediate skill jobs to appreciably high skill jobs, particularly given the short-term constraint on the number of intermediate jobs in the economy. And for the future, scary statistic. Joseph Roundtree and UKCS did some um, using the working the IER's Working Futures database, which is pretty reliable. Um, they looked at what would happen if the leach targets were met, which they won't be, by the way. But even if they were, by 2020. Um, the lowest three deciles of earnings, i.e. the 30% of the workforce who earn the least, at least 30% of the workers in those lowest three deciles will have a level four to eight qualification. So almost a third of the people working in what will be low-paid jobs 
will have a level four to eight qualification, which again will tend to make the average return um, to qualifications even less meaningful in terms of telling us what's happening. But for those people who think they're heading towards those kind of jobs, a chilling effect on the rate of return that they can expect. Complexity and uncertainty equals risk. It's a real problem that people at the lower end of the social spectrum have fewer financial resources, they have fewer parental resources, and there is a lot of research evidence that shows that people in that position are more risk-averse than relatively rich middle-class people because they've got more to lose and less to wager. Children from better-off backgrounds can succeed because they can fail. They can actually afford to fail at something. Um, People from constrained resource backgrounds actually can't afford to fail because the consequences of failure are financially disastrous for them. Reform of EQs is good, we're nearly at the end, but there are two big problems. Problem number one. In sectors like retailing, cleaning, hospitality and care, what are the chances that left to their own devices, employers will collectively design qualifications that can specify high levels of broadly based skill. Previous attempts at VQ design have tended to founder on the sort of convoy principle. We move at the speed of the slowest ship in the convoy. We move at the speed of the most recalcitrant employer who's sitting in the room when the VQ is designed. And I suspect that's a real problem. That what you are likely to get in those sorts of occupations is a low floor being set rather than some high aspiration. Problem two, even if you could solve problem one and you produced a really cracking qualification, would that qualification, given the wage structures in some of those occupations, like care, cleaning, retail, generate a significant return? And the answer is probably no. That's the real nub of the problem. You can have great VQs and the rate of return could still be pretty dismal. It's interesting that to date the DfE, as you know, have been um, busily reforming um, VQs in the wake of the um, Wolf Review findings. But very, very sensibly, they started at the easy end of the spectrum. They decided that level three would be the best place to start. And if I was in their shoes, I'd be doing just the same and hoping that I could move to another job before you got to level two. Because when you get to level two, it's going to be a whole different ballgame. It's really a different world. And if you look at the rates of return evidence on VQs, level two is where it all starts to go horribly pear-shaped. Acid test. As a consequence of the Richard Review, employers will be constructing new level two apprenticeship qualifications, which is going to be exciting. In the sectors on that slide, what do you reckon employers are going to produce? I really am going to be fascinated, first of all, to watch the process of the creation of these qualifications, the people who are involved, and what comes out at the other end of the sausage machine. But I wouldn't want to bank my pension on much coming out that will actually work terribly well because I suspect that what you will find going back to that um, apprenticeship framework 2009 consultation thing is that a lot of employers will say, I want low skills, simple to train, quick to train, easy and cheap. I don't want this broad learning. I don't want a substantial off-the-job element. And 
if you think that the people who've got these qualifications are going to earn large sums of money as a result, you're dreaming. Now, I could be wrong, but we'll wait and see. Final thoughts. The end is nigh. Again, a quote from Steve Roberts. I think it's a really good quote because I think that governments for the last 20 years have got more and more obsessed with qualifications as a policy artefact, almost as a sort of religious token, that if they have more of them, the world will be a better place. Well, my answer to that would be maybe. Achieving a qualification, any qualification, it seems, has become a proxy measure of successful outcomes over and above what people actually do in their job, what they're actually paid, what they can afford, or whether they generally, genuinely improve their capacity to be more productive. And I think that's a critical problem, that we have seen qualifications as the outcome rather than something that should lead to outcomes. Because if we measured VQs by the outcomes they generate, we know we've got problems. If we measure the number of VQs we've got, things look a lot rosier. Second final thought. Analysis tends to show that employers and wage structures, occupational labour markets, recruitment selection systems, work organisation and job design are what actually determine demand for skill. Policymakers are obsessed with the idea that if we ask employers nicely enough, then this time they'll come up with the goods. I don't think that is a realistic belief. I think that we have to be worrying about those structural factors and trying to persuade, encourage, incentivise, cajole or threaten employers to start changing wage structures, occupational labour markets, their recruitment selection systems, their work organisation and their job design. And it's really interesting. This got very little press coverage, which I find rather exasperating. The Social Mobility and Child Poverty Commissioner, i.e. Alan Milburn uh, and his team, have recently produced a really interesting report, which is in my reading list at the end, which everyone should look at. It's quite brief. I think it runs to about 14 pages. What's really interesting is that for the first time, there is a realisation that unless we change the nature of the bottom end of the labour market, rather than simply obsessing about who gets degrees or goes to elite universities... We can forget about social mobility and we can forget about tackling child poverty. And Milburn and his team say we need a higher national minimum wage, gasp. We need living wage campaigns, labour market regulation and enforcement, programmes to assist, assist employers to redesign work, new forms of collective bargaining and wage setting mechanisms um, and reassessment of social norms around low pay. Now that's actually pretty revolutionary stuff and that's come from um, someone who is an official advisor appointed by the government whose advice the government is meant to at least pay some attention to so it's interesting that the penny has finally begun to drop in that quarter at least about the structural nature of some of the problems in our labor market if we want to minimize Un unemployment, underemployment, credentialism, bumpy transitions from um, uh, learning to earning, and wasted public and private investment in education and training, we need to do two, two other things. We need to have an industrial strategy which supports product market innovation, competitive strategies that drive rising demand for skills across the bulk of the economy, not just across a few high selected high-tech sectors that will may be very important for exports but will never employ the bulk of the workforce. And secondly, we need systems of work organisation, 
job design and employee relations that stress good skill utilisation, workplace skill formation and workplace innovation, i.e. bottom-up innovation. So there we are, and there is the further reading, um, which I really do recommend to you. Um, all of those things are worth a look, with the possible exception of my 2009 monograph, which, which really is actually, I have to say it, quite dull, but useful. So there we are. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.